Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I was thinking uh, earlier today about the process and the experience of sharing a Dharma talk. And uh, in some ways, I, I think of it as one person speaking, sharing the Dharma, sharing the truth as the, the Buddha saw it and as we understand it, um, so that everybody can sit around and just listen to truth. So it's coming out of this body right now. <clears throat> Hopefully it is aligned with what the Buddha said. And uh, it's just a chance for us all to be touched by the truth together. <clears throat> Not necessarily that uh, I'm teaching you anything that you don't know, but perhaps just reminding us all of what we know inside and what we delight in remembering. So I, I want to talk tonight uh, on the subject of faith. Faith is um, a very important quality in Buddha Dharma. Sometimes, sometimes people don't realize it because with all the lists and all the, the linear expressions of, of the Dharma, it might seem more of a, a cerebral, certainly a wisdom path, but more of a cerebral path. And um, it's important to remember that the heart is a very central aspect of the Buddha's teachings. In fact, faith is really the, the beginning of the process of awakening as seen in the, uh, the list called the Five Spiritual Faculties, which interestingly enough uh, as well are also, they also comprise another list called the Five Spiritual Powers. It's the only list that I know of where the same qualities are repeated in two ways, and they actually are 10 of 37 factors or requisites of enlightenment. For Just as a little aside, if you're into lists, you can have another one that you can spend some time with. But there's the five faculties, and then when they ripen and mature, become the five powers. And both lists start with this quality of faith. The word uh, in Pali is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, which actually means to place one's heart upon. If the word faith triggers old memories of either inspiration or repression, uh, just let go of any connotations that don't work for you because in the, in the Buddhist teachings, faith has a few, or sada has a few aspects to it. 
Uh, it is also a quality of trust. And as well, the experience, the feeling of confidence that we can have in ourselves and in the Dharma. And just before I get into faith in, uh, in detail, just want to share with you how that list works, the spiritual faculties list, that coming to practice requires some kind of faith or trust that there's a reason to do this. You know, maybe a friend has told you, this is really good, you know, and you trust them. You know, hopefully you're still a friend of theirs and after your first retreat. You know, by the second one, you, you certainly value their friendship. Maybe the first couple of days of the first retreat, you know, what do they get me into here? But you either trust in somebody else or you have some kind of yearning for the truth and some vision that it's possible. And that gives you the impetus, the motivation to put in the effort, which is the second faculty, to practice. And as you make the effort to be more mindful the heart of practice, mindfulness develops. As mindfulness strengthens, it leads to a concentration that allows us to see clearly through what's usually uh, obscured in our understanding. And that concentration flowers as wisdom. And those are the five faculties. But it starts with faith, this quality of the heart that gives us the energy to practice. And in fact, just one more thing as I think about it, with the five faculties, they are also in balance, like the, the, uh, the seven factors that Sally talked about last night. And faith, or this heart quality, is essential to balance the wisdom, which is the, the last of these faculties. It's not like you go th- one through five and, you know, you, they work all together. And if there's too much wisdom that is uh, an investigation without enough heart, then it tends towards skepticism and a very cerebral um, understanding, not a deep experiential understanding. So the wisdom and the, and the faith, the heart and the the mind need to be in balance. Faith is the antidote to that deadly of deadly hindrances, um, doubt. You know, when you're in the middle of doubt, it just incapacitates all spirit for practice. I can't do this. This is weird. What was I thinking? I don't know about this path. All of those things, and all of us know what doubt is like. And when we're in the throes of it, it's really, it's almost impossible to practice unless we work with doubt skillfully. And we can use doubt as a subject of our mindfulness. When the doubt is not, when the mindfulness isn't strong enough to penetrate and see the doubt as simply the doubting mind, faith becomes the antidote 
to bring some balance, give us some inspiration so that we can come to understand using the mindfulness when our mind is more in balance. And doubt is something that all of us have. Even the Buddha, just before he was enlightened, as I'm sure most all of us know, that Mudra, as he's touching the earth, after Mara has tried to seduce him with delicious visions of celestial nymphs and uh, tried to frighten him with armies attacking him, the last thing that Mara throws, his trump card, is doubt, where he says, what makes you think you have the right to be enlightened? And that's when the Buddha touches his hand, as Sylvia mentioned the other day. May the earth bear witness to all the lifetimes of work I've done. And then he becomes free. If Mara visits the Buddha just before he's enlightened with doubt, then you can cut yourself a little slack if you're finding yourself caught every now and then. And the same we can say for Jesus on the cross. As he's there finishing his ministry, that thought comes to him. Why hast thou forsaken me? Just a moment of doubt that really demonstrates the humanness of, of, his, um, of his sacred heart. Doubt can come to us on many different levels. We can have doubt on a personal level as... I said, you know, oh, I don't think I can do this. Often, and I'll first talk about practice here on, uh, on retreat and then talk about doubt and faith in the world, the larger scale, because it, it feels appropriate to do that. But first here on retreat, we can have these, these feelings that either I'm not good enough or I don't have the capacity I don't think I can do it. You know what that's like, right? It's so interesting how this experience of doubt comes to us no matter how sincere our intention is. It's one of the classical five hindrances. It visits us from time to time. But when we believe it, we are misperceiving the truth. I remember on uh, one retreat, it was the three-month course in 1979, and uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, came to, to visit at the, uh, towards the end of the retreat. You know, talk about dessert, huh? And there he is, and he had this question and answer period with all the retreatants. And uh, somebody asked him about unworthiness. And they said, you know, what do you do with, with your mind and your heart when you just don't feel deserving and where you feel that it's not in your, 
capacity to become free. You don't feel good enough. And the translator, after some struggle, uh, got the, the Dalai Lama to understand this concept of unworthiness. He just didn't get it at first. I guess if you were told since the age of three that you're the bodhisattva of infinite compassion, you probably have a good self-esteem. You know. <laughs> but it's something particularly for, uh, for Westerners, this quality of unworthiness that comes up on, on practice and retreat. Because people in Asia come to it with such a deep sense of faith, um, commonly. Anyway, as, as the Dalai Lama got the got the question, he looked at this person and said very clearly and firmly, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine the Dalai Lama telling you this <laughs> bodhisattva, Matt, you're wrong. You know? But he said it with incredible love and compassion. What, what makes you think that everything else belongs in the universe? Everything else is part of this fabric of life and somehow you don't belong. Everything else has the opportunity to awaken and be free, be liberated, and somehow you don't. This is a misperception. It was a very powerful moment. I came across this quote from, uh, actually it was, I think, anonymous as far as I know, but... It said, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it is preferring your own opinion to God's. This kind of sums that up. And let's see. Well, I'll share one, one other story. Some of you have heard where I got this very powerfully when uh, I visited... Uh, this wonderful teacher who's very uh, had a, a power, a profound effect on me, uh, Punjaji or Papaji. I went in 1990, and Sylvia uh, uh, came was with 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 me on the trip, and a few of us uh, got a chance to spend some time with him, and he's he was just quite extraordinary. Um, and he you know, talked about the fact that you can already you're already free. You just have to see it. You just have to realize it. And I came from this model of, well, you have to do a lot of work to purify your heart, you know, and your karma has to ripen. And when conditions are right, then awakening happens. So I asked him about, what if your karma isn't sufficiently ripened? But I put it in terms of grace because... He would talk in that way, you know. Yes, we all have the grace to be free, right? And I said, well, how do I know that I have sufficient grace? You know, maybe my karma isn't ripened. And he said, grace, you talk of grace. You come from around the world, very, very sincere, very sincere motivation, good set circumstances, good practice, good teacher, all the conditions right. Grace, you're neck deep in grace and you wonder if you have grace. <laughs> and if we reflect on it, 
we're all neck deep in grace. Coming here to practice together, good situation, wonderful community, supportive, food provided. You don't have to do anything except just put your whole heart into waking up. What amazing karma. You're neck deep in grace. Still, the doubting mind can come, doesn't it? We want to do it right. We want to do it perfect. And we have the report card going for our practice. There's a beautiful line in, in the Third Zen Patriarch, one of my favorite pieces of Dharma. Uh, towards the end, it says, to live in this realization, to live in true understanding, is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. To just be yourself and let life express itself through your being just as it needs to just as it can do perfectly. When we have faith, it connects us to something larger than ourselves. It connects us. We don't need to feel it's up to us to do it. We can open our heart and move into a wider context where we're held and supported. Whether you call it the Dharma or God, whatever it is that you call it, that movement of the heart that somehow trusts, it trusts beyond your own capacity. There's a a kind of surrender to a higher reality in that. When we're letting go of the idea that we're doing it alone and we open to that higher reality, in that moment we're not identified with the small I that feels the pressure, that it's up to us to do this right. And when we have that faith, it gives us courage. It gives us courage to explore new territory. It gives us courage to take risks, to hold our fear, or even in the midst of our fear, to move into, uh, into new areas. Courage, and it takes a lot of courage to do this practice, doesn't it? Courage to feel everything that go, that's going on inside. Courage to feel our emotions. Courage to feel our fear. Courage to let go of control. Courage to let go of the sense of self. That's scary. Who are we if we do that? It takes courage to let go into a deep silence. To let go of our thinking mind and our ideas of who we are. To rest deeply in another reality where we don't know, where we can't even use the conceptual mind. It takes courage to show our hearts, to show our love, 
And all of those come with this sense of faith. Now, sometimes when people hear about having faith or trusting, they might get the idea that if you really have enough faith, you'll get to have things work out the way you want. And this is, I think, a setup for disappointment. That's not how it works. Sometimes it does. Fabulous when it does. What a nice surprise. But often, life is a whole lot more creative than our plans. And so if you're sitting there wondering and you've got your timetable going, well, come on, I really have faith, but it's not happening. Your faith can wither. It's not that things will work out just the way you want. There is the first noble truth, isn't there? There is suffering in life. There is unsatisfactoriness, unreliability. And there's, it's not even that you can trust in yourself, but rather, I think what develops as we practice more and more is that we can trust in the awareness that meets the moment. And as we practice moment after moment encountering what's happening right now and learning to meet it with a balance that's not grasping, that's not contracting, that's not identifying with the experience, as we meet each moment that way, we see that every moment is workable. And we start to have a confidence and a trust that when the moments come that are waiting for us, we can meet them with that awareness. And so we we can develop a tremendous confidence and trust in awareness itself. Trust that we can respond with wisdom and balance and clarity and a good heart in any moment as we practice more and more. Faith is also uh, different from hope. They can often seem uh, aligned or uh, synonymous, but it's really different. There's, you know, hope is sometimes all that we have. Right? So it's better than nothing. But faith is a much deeper level than hope. I came across this quote from uh, Seneca, the Roman philosopher. He said, um, You cease to be afraid when you cease to hope because hope is always accompanied by fear. Maybe it won't work out. What then? And there's faith is doesn't have fear in it. There's a kind of ease and strength and confidence. <clears throat> so, what is this faith about? What do we have confidence in if we Besides trusting in our awareness, what can we have confidence 
in ourselves that we know is unshakable. Well, as the practice unfolds and we really see who we are, we see who we really are, then we realize we're not running the show. The small I, the small self that wants to control things, that's not, that's just an illusion of control. When we see beyond that small sense of self, that small I, then we can have confidence in our original nature. We can have trust and faith as we touch that place. This is from Huang Po. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, Your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of the suchness. This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it and regard only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, that source would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. That's who you really are. Good news, isn't it? And that's what the practice points us to more and more deeply understand and know. But you can't get there with your thinking mind. You can't touch that divine or that unnameable or the kingdom of God or your Buddha nature. You can't do it with this thinking mind. You can't do it through logic. The third Zen patriarch again says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. But we kind of like like the idea of watching ourselves get enlightened. Oh, pretty far out. Hey, getting really quiet now. And as soon as you do that and get into this place of the watcher, somebody doing something, you disconnect from that pure being shining through you. That's why mindfulness is such a powerful tool, why it's the way that the Buddha suggested to be free, because that sense of self dissolves when you are deeply 
connected. When there is not grasping at the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, or identifying with your experience. In that moment that you're not identifying with the experience, then your true nature shines through. And it can happen in, um, in moments that you least expect it. Somebody was uh, sharing with me in an interview. You know, they were doing walking meditation. And just in one moment, all boundaries dissolved. And it was just walking happening and awareness knowing it. The mindfulness allows that to be revealed. And in that seeing through the illusion of separation, even for a glimpse, even for a moment, perspective changes. Not even, oh, look at me being aware. It's just awareness, awareing. Just doing what it does. And that happens when you just dive into the moment. I remember at one, on one retreat, one uh, three-month course, where it seemed like it was really happening. You know, ooh, boy, this is getting very essency, And maybe, uh, maybe something profound is going to go on. And I, and I kept on trying to watch myself have these profound states. Maybe I'll watch, see myself get enlightened. And it was, I kept on like knocking my head against the wall until it occurred to me at some point that whenever I become free, truly, completely free, it will be here and it will be now, whenever that is. And so, instead of trying to make anything happen, if I completely dive into the moment, that's the doorway through. And in fact, every moment that we do that, every moment that we're mindful, this is what we're cultivating. But it takes some courage to dive in, doesn't it, into that new territory. And uh, sometimes it gets a little scary. And so we, we like to play it safe. Well, um, you know, what if I get in over my head? What if I really let go and it's too much? It's overwhelming. Well, that's not really how it works. In fact, just that thought keeps us from possibly truly surrendering. And the, the gift is when you let go and you truly surrender, life is ready to reveal itself to you. And here in this context, on this, in this environment, there's all the support that you need. And if you seem like you're in over your head, you can always check in with somebody. But there's always also the option to just pull back if it seems to be too much. And there's usually a self-regulating mechanism in our being that says, okay, time to just get some balance here. Getting a little bit off, a little bit too much. Okay? So rather than playing it safe, 
to um, play your edge. Because fear is going to come up any time you're into new territory. So fear isn't a bad thing. As Jack Cornfield says, fear is really saying, about to grow. And it's just playing that edge and knowing that, sure, fear is like a scout as we expand and explore. Not to be afraid of making mistakes is a very important thing in practice. I remember I was telling Sylvia this uh, the other day at Thanksgiving, we were talking about um, our growing up in New York and uh, and I was sharing this story about when I was a kid and um, uh, we'd go to my grandparents' house. My father would, would drive, we'd get into the car, my sister and my mom and I, and we'd somehow get from Jackson Heights, Elmhurst, Queens to uh, Lower East Side, First Avenue, Seventh right? Street. And then we get in a you know, later, you know, another another time, and we'd somehow magically get from Queens to Brighton Beach. You know, and I remember saying to my father, "I don't know how you do that. You know? I'm never going to be able to to drive and find my way around. You know, it's so complicated. There's so many signs. There's so many options as you're going through these streets and these. I, I, I'll never do it." And he said, um, he said, oh, sure you will, sure you will. You'll go, you'll start out, you might get lost, you see how you made a mistake, you come back, you might get lost again, you find your way, and after a while, you'll do it. It's okay to get lost. So then you find out how to get there. Right? And it was, you know... This is when I was about eight or nine. You know, it's stayed with me since. It's okay to get lost. It had never occurred to me. Oh, it's okay to get lost. You know? <clears throat> and the Buddha said the same thing as far as um, uh, making mistakes. Actually, it was in his advice to his son, advice to Rahula. Uh, number 61 in Majima Nikaya. He says, you know, sometimes you'll have an impulse to do something or say something and uh, you might just reflect, is this going to lead to happiness or is this going to lead to suffering? And if it leads to suffering, then don't do it. If it leads to peace and happiness, then go ahead and do it. He says, but sometimes you won't realize until you're in the middle of the actions or the words. And if you realize then, just reflect, is this leading to suffering or is this leading to happiness? And then act accordingly. And then he said, sometimes you won't realize until it's over. And you've said the words, you've done the deed. And at that time, just look back and see, How did that feel? And if it didn't feel so good, then make an intention to do it differently the next time. If it felt good, then continue. It's okay 
as long as you keep on learning and you have the intention to continue to grow and understand, let your courage to venture forth um, carry you through. Because if you've got that sincere intention, if you've got that goodness of heart, if you've got that as your vision and your aspiration, then whatever you're doing in that spirit, uh, there's a wholesomeness about it and you can keep on learning. Where do we find our faith? We have a number of different sources we can have what's called bright faith by being inspired by others. For me, I remember the first time I heard the the Dharma, Buddha Dharma, in 1974, when Joseph Goldstein was teaching at Europa Institute. And after a few minutes of judging him, he didn't quite fit my image of a deep, spiritual teacher. He was just a couple of years older than I was and also sounded like he was from New York and you know, wasn't that impressive. After about 10 minutes of that, I just listened to what he was saying and I realized this guy knows something I want to know. And I got tremendously inspired by the possibility that I didn't have to be a slave to my neurotic thought patterns for the rest of my life. That bright faith, I was in love with the Dharma. And probably all of us have our own story of falling in love with the Dharma. You know, some of us have longer honeymoons than others, but it's wonderful that initial inspiration, maybe hearing the Dalai Lama or reading something in a book, hearing a tape, that gets us to practice then we also might find our faith from reflecting, reading the teachings or hearing them and saying, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let me try it for myself. We can find our faith from the refuges, from the three refuges, the three sources of inspiration. The fact that the Buddha actually did come to the end of suffering and he seemed to really know really understand. Everything rings with such truth. We can be very inspired taking our refuge in the Buddha and taking our refuge in our own Buddha nature or taking refuge in the Dharma, the teachings as they're presented or the truth in this moment. We can take our refuge and find faith in the Sangha, the noble Sangha of people for the last 2,500 years who've become awakened, it's really possible. Many people have done that. Taking refuge in the monastic sangha of people who've committed themselves to awakening and leading an ascetic life, renunciate life. Taking refuge in the sangha of like-minded friends. These are all sources of, of inspiration and faith. The most powerful source of faith is our own experience, what's called verified faith, where we have seen for ourselves the truth. And once we see the truth for ourselves, no one can take it away. No one. 
even when it seems like not much is happening, it's happening as you plant those seeds. I remember on one retreat, it was my second retreat, I had tremendous doubt, lots of doubt. I was a phony, everybody around was a phony, it was kind of weird, and I tried to sit, I couldn't sit, I tried to walk, I couldn't walk. Finally, I just said, I just need to cool out, and went up to my area in this retreat center in southern Washington, and there was a picture of Neem Karoli Baba uh, from uh, Ramdas's books, who's a very strong connection for me, and he was kind of looking at me, smiling, and saying, hmm, getting pretty freaked out, aren't we? You know? And in a moment, the whole drama, the whole intensity just broke, and I had this tremendous exhilaration. Oh, wow, I just got lost in that. And seeing that, that picture and, and getting in touch with my, my faith that I had in him, it just, the doubt just dispelled. And I got so excited because I couldn't wait to tell my teacher that I conquered doubt. <laughs> but unfortunately, the interview was about eight hours from the time that that happened. And so I went through most every mind state imaginable great exhilaration and, and sense of confidence and then I kind of got spun out and then I kind of got exhausted and then I got confused and then I lost it and then I... And finally when I went to the interview and he said, so what's happening? And I said, completely innocent and um, with exasperation, I sighed, it's always changing. <laughs> and he said, that's it. You got it. I said, oh yeah, that's what you keep on saying, isn't it? And the insight just kind of crept up from behind. That's often how it happens. Just when we least expect it. Oh, got lost in that one, didn't I? Oh, that's what they're talking about, not taking your thoughts to be real. I remember one... Uh, one retreat, this guy, uh, um, this beautiful yogi who's, who's done many, many retreats, he used to always wonder if he, could, if he was getting concentrated enough. He said, I always have trouble with concentration. I just don't know if the practice is really working like it should. And then he came in this one retreat and he said, well, I want to tell you something. I, um, I had emergency heart surgery about a month ago. And uh, they, they wheeled me in and he had to have this bypass surgery. And I said, wow, how was it? He said, well, you know, the most amazing thing. As it was happening and all these people were rushing around, he said, I just was with my breath. And I said, it's just this moment. And then I thought, and if I die, there'll just be the next moment and it'll be okay. I said, wow, you're the one that always doubts if that practice is working, right? He said, yeah, it's amazing. I never would have thought it. So when you're going through your own confusions and your own suffering, not to think that it's not happening, to see that whatever you're learning, you're learning for your own awakening and also as you get through it and develop your own sense of faith, that's what you offer to others. 
What an incredible gift. This is what we're offering to others through our own verified faith. What we absolutely know to be true. And it doesn't have to use words to be spoken. People can feel it. Oh, this person knows they've been there and they're not afraid. And there's something that gives them some confidence to say it's okay. Besides faith in ourselves or in our practice and working with the doubt that we might have in this environment, what about the doubt that we have when things in life seem so incomprehensible that we can't hold them? Where do we find the faith to meet the unthinkable? How can we trust in life when it seems to be so unfair? How is it possible to understand something like recent events have asked us to understand? Well, one very interesting teaching that the Buddha gives is that suffering itself can either lead to an embittered, closed heart, as we know, can lead to frustration, contraction, fear, anger, or it can lead to faith. And there is a one esoteric list known as transcendental dependent arising that starts out suffering is the causative factor for faith. Isn't that interesting? And then from faith to higher states of consciousness, contentment, joy, contentment, peace, and ultimately freedom. The Buddha started out teaching the first noble truth. He didn't mince words. He didn't say, oh, it's really, everything is okay. Just trust me. He said, let's take a look and really come to terms with suffering. As you can understand it, then you're not afraid to directly open to it because it's part of life. When we encounter deep suffering it cracks our heart. It shakes us out of our complacency. It makes us look deeply. It makes us ask questions. And if it can be held in a teaching that investigates the nature of reality, investigates suffering, and held in a practice that allows us to more and more understand it deeply without fear, then the suffering that we encounter can lead directly to faith. Because at some point, we let go of figuring it out with our mind and we have to surrender to something larger. Realize we don't understand this. We can't understand this. The human realm is said to be the optimal realm to wake up because it has both suffering 
and joy. And if there's too much good stuff in the heavenly realms, you just get entranced in that. If there's only um, the hell realms and and things that, that are filled with suffering, you can't wake up. But here we are in the optimal environment to wake up because we see, yes, there's pleasure, there's pain, there's joy, there's sorrow, there's peace, there's suffering. But still, we can have a doubt about life, about the goodness of things, the rightness of things. Why is there evil? Somebody asked that to Ramakrishna, the Indian sage, and he said, to thicken the plot. (laughs) It makes us examine. It makes us look deeply. There's been suffering, there's been cruelty, since the beginning of human existence and before, as far as suffering, birth, death, pleasure, pain, even in the, the, the beginning in the Judeo-Christian story, the Garden of Eden, of, of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's right there. God can understand, but when we take that bite... It's too much for us. In the fabric of existence, life feeds on life. And what we're called to do, I think, is to surrender our limited perspective of how things are. How can we hold a vision that allows us to surrender? When we have a narrow perspective... First, we're just concerned about ourselves, just taking care of everything, okay? And we, it, it pains us to experience suffering within ourselves. Then, as we open up to include others, to include those near us and dear us, we care about their well-being and their welfare. As we open up our perspective, we might include others in our community or our country. But there still is a tendency towards us and them. And we might include all of humanity. And as many humans do, forget really about our place in the the wider scheme of things on our planet. I think as we have greater and greater faith, we have a larger and larger perspective so that it's not limited to the human view of reality. I was saying this to somebody in, uh, in an interview. For us, what happened a couple of months ago is just overwhelming. How could that be? And when you think of it, when somebody is overrun with ants in their house right, and they take out the, the ant stakes and kill the colony 
to those ants, from their perspective, it's the same as what happened to us. Now, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but getting out of the human perspective on reality, we are part of the natural flow, ebb and flow of life. And world systems come and go. And from the bigger perspective, it's all part of the natural order. Just life playing on itself and playing with itself. This is from Albert Einstein. He says, A human being is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to the affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So, a bottom line aspect of faith that I have been inquiring is, is the universe benevolent? Now, you can make a case either way. It's run by something with a warped sense of humor, or it's malevolent, or it's neutral, it's just as it is, or it's benevolent. And so I'll just share from my more bhakti perspective, uh, my sense that um, holding it benevolent as a benevolent place is, uh, is a doorway to faith. And I really see, or I, I sense that as we do our spiritual work, this is more and more available to us. Because what we are doing is aligning ourselves with truth. If aligning ourselves with truth leads to an ease, leads to a peace, leads to an openness of heart, leads to freedom, then when we see clearly the nature of things, just that that is available to us, that peace, that harmony inside as we become in harmony with the greater outside, the whole of, of life, as we become aligned with that, if there's a great happiness that arises, it seems that a universe that makes that available is benevolent to me. The relative level of reality, everything is interconnected so intricately, so refined, and everything is in perfect balance. And in the Hindu tradition, there is the Brahma, the creator, the preserver, Vishnu, and the destroyer, Shiva. They're all part of a world in harmony. And this is just the magical display, as they say in the Tibetan, of this perfection. 
when we see clearly the nature of it all, when we penetrate our confusion and open up to the deepest level of reality, to that absolute or ultimate reality that underlines the relative, it's liberating. In Advaita and and Hindu traditions, this is called touching sat-chit-ananda, being, consciousness, and bliss. There is a blissful experience when you touch the true nature of things. That's the underlying reality, that which is unchanging. The unconditioned, nibbana, realizing God, the ground of being, whatever you call it, the source, like Huang Po says. And only by surrendering our conceptual mind, when we have the faith to let go completely, we can see what's always been here. So I'll close with this poem from Rumi. If you catch a fragrance of the unseen like that, you won't be able to be contained. You'll be out in empty sky. As you live deeper in the heart, the mirror gets cleaner and clearer. Shams of Tabris realized God in himself. When that happens, you have no anxieties about losing anyone or anything. You break the spells human difficulties cause. Interpretations come, hundreds from all the religious symbols and parables and prayers. You know what they mean when God lives through you like this. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. We'll take about 40 minutes for walking. And uh, let your faith just flower. Just tune into it. See what it is that you believe that you know to be true. And let that uh, inspire your own practice. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.